Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week three of this Revelation series. And I hope all of you are beginning to settle in and, and are being challenged uh, as much as I've been. I mean, this week, we're focusing on part one of the, the letters to the churches. And there is so much gold here. And I, I would encourage you to, uh, to get a pen, get some paper, and take some notes. So let's, uh, let's dive in. The seven churches listed here in, in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, were located on a major Roman road. I mean, a letter carrier would, would leave this island of Patmos uh, where John was exiled, arriving first at, at Ephesus. And then he, he would travel north uh, to Smyrna in Pergamum. And he would turn southeast to Thyatira and continue to Sardis in Philadelphia and then, and then Laodicea. In the exact order, you know, the letters were dictated. So these letters to the seven churches share um, a similar structure. I mean, they each feature the following. They, they feature uh, an, an address to, uh, to the particular congregation, an introduction of, of Jesus, a statement regarding uh, the condition of the church, a verdict from Jesus regarding the condition of the church, a command from Jesus to the church, and then typically at the end, a general strong encouragement or, or challenge to all the Christians. And last, a promise of reward. And so we can see the state of these seven churches and, and really the state of our own walk with Jesus by looking at what Jesus has to say to each church in each section. So don't hear all of this and then walk away pointing fingers at these individual churches like, like we're much better. I mean, we all have a lot to learn. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to highlight really three of these seven churches in this two-part, you know, in these next two episodes. I want to look at Thyatira. I want to look at the church of Sardis and, and, and Laodicea. And I'll briefly touch on the other four as we go, but to walk through each church and, and break them down uh, will take too long and, and just will absolutely overwhelm us. You know, sticking to three, I think, will be enough of a challenge. So let's remember that Jesus commands each church. I mean, he, he, he rebukes each church and he leaves them with actionable steps to take in order to live the life that he's commanded us to live. I mean, so take notice and allow the spirit to challenge your hearts today and, and also to challenge your heart next week as we dive in. So let, let's just quickly identify the first three churches. And I encourage you to go back and read the text about these churches. So you have the church in Ephesus, which is in revelation two, one through seven. I mean, Jesus commends them for their hard work and their endurance. 
But then he rebukes them because they had lost their first love. I mean, they did not love as they did at first. And then what, what call to action does Jesus lead them with? He leaves them with this, remember and repent. And then we move to Smyrna, the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Jesus commends them for the way uh, that they suffered persecution and poverty and how they endured. Here, Jesus does not rebuke them, which is pretty abnormal. Jesus leaves them with, you know, he commands them to not to fear and to stay faithful. And then when we move to the church of Pergamum in Revelation 2, 12 through 17, Jesus commends them for remaining loyal. But then he, he rebukes them because they had tolerated compromise, which was a problem in a lot of the churches due to heavy persecution. And what call to action does Jesus leave them with? To repent. I mean, this brings us now to, to this first deep dive. And I want to take a deep dive into the, the church of, of Thyatira because there is so much here for us to look at. Let's just start by reading Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from those evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and the intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, or what they call the deeper truths, as they, as they call them, the depths of Satan. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. And to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what is what he is saying to the churches. So what does it mean to tolerate the intolerable? I mean this is the question that that I ask myself as I read that text. As we look to the letter to this church of Thyatira, what we recognize is that there is a kind of pressure brought upon the church either through overt or covert persecution that leads to one of two responses. These responses are either one, run away, or two, compromise. And so the, the, the church it, right now is, is known in Thyatira 
um, for, for, for making somewhat of a compromise, proclaiming the gospel. And so in our context, how, how, how do we compromise the gospel? Well, well, first, you know, there's times when we just sugarcoat the gospel so, so that it'll be acceptable and that, that we won't get any pushback. You know, second, another way it would be to incorporate false teaching in an effort to compromise. Third is just failing to confront and, and discipline sin. I mean, I think of the classic example in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul called out the church for not confronting this man who was um, sleeping with his stepmother. I mean, the church was just okay with this and Paul rebuked him for it. And he explains how we as the church are to deal with confronting and, and disciplining sin. The fourth kind of compromise is, is embracing uh, the sinful aspects of culture. I mean, how often do we embrace sin in our culture to be accepted? I mean, we do every day when the Bible is clear about how we are to live. And many Christians right now are dealing with this when it comes to how uh, we deal with homosexuality in our culture. Many are saying, you know, tolerate it because that is loving. And then there are many that are condemning it. And what is the answer on how to deal with it? Well, the simple answer, what does the book say about it? What does God say? I mean, we have to come to a point where we ask God for all of our answers. Not our feelings, not our emotions, not our friends, not Google or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or TikTok. The Bible, period. It starts there and it ends there. So my friends, the, the, the greatest advice I can give you is to preach the book. And don't be afraid to preach the book. So what does all this have to do with this, this church in Thyatira? Well, everything. I mean, that is precisely what is going on here in this letter. To this point in this letter, the specific church um, had, had not experienced direct persecution. They're, they're experiencing indirect persecution that often leads to compromise. I mean, this letter to this church is the longest of the seven letters written. It's very wordy. This is a very disturbing letter. I mean, it's a disturbing confrontation and it's disturbing on many levels. Why? Well, number one, what was being allowed in this church? And number two, Jesus's response. I mean, Jesus's rebuke is not what many of us want to talk about. I mean, sadly for many of us, we, we see Jesus, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, hair like a shampoo model, very laid back, great grace to all, love for all. You know, holding the, the little lamb as, and as, as gentle as, as, as they come. I mean, we act like God on the left side of the Bible isn't the same as the right side of the Bible. You ever notice that? We look at God in the New Testament and then we look at God in the, in the, in the New, uh, look at God in the Old Testament and then we look at God in the, in the New Testament and, and we act like they're not the same. He's not the same. And sadly for for those who think this way, that this Jesus says he's going to kill people. Guys, this is disturbing. And we don't like to think of Jesus in this way, but we have to. 
So how do we apply all of this? I mean, we start with culture and then we analyze the church and then look at Christ as, as he is presented here. So verse 18 and 19, it says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira. This is the message from the son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love and your faith and your service and, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. So first notice how Jesus identifies himself here. Different to each church. And the reason he identifies himself different to each depends on what he's saying to that specific church. I mean, to the church of Ephesus, he says the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. His threat to them is he will remove their lampstand. How about to the church of Smyrna? The one who is, is the first and the last who was dead, but is now alive. He's talking about their tribulation and their poverty. His, resur his resurrection is significant. How about to the church of Pergamum? This message is, is from the one who, who has this, the, who, this message is from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Why is that important? Because he's going to judge them with the sword from his mouth. And then finally here to the, the, the church of Thyatira. From the son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I mean, why is this significant? Well, first, he is, the, he is the son of God. He is referencing the title that was given to Caesar in this culture. I mean, he's letting everyone know that Caesar is not the son of God, that, that he is. That's his title. This city was under Roman rule and it was under their authority and their rules. He has eyes like flames of fire. I mean, this is the reference to Revelation 1.14 and to the piercing eyes of judgment. Nothing can escape his eyes. Jesus says over and over, I know your works. I mean, how can he say this? Because he sees everything. Friends, he is omniscient. There is nothing that hides from Jesus. Not only is there nothing that hides from him on the surface, but the idea that Jesus has eyes of fire means that his eyes penetrate through the actual event itself to the intention of your very soul. He knows what you do and he knows why you do it. There, there's no escaping. And in case you're wondering if this is supposed to be an intimidating title, turn over to Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. This is my favorite description of Jesus. This isn't shampoo hair model Jesus, you know, with the soft hands holding the baby lamb on the, on the side of the mountain, who is all love and all grace and, and who accepts all people. And this is Jesus bringing down judgment and wrath. This is the Jesus that is coming soon. It says here, then I saw heaven open and, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named faithful and true for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. He wore a robe, a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God like juice flowing from the wine press. On his robe, at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Guys, that, that's what's evoked 
by the idea of Jesus having eyes like flames of fire. And we must understand the word of God in its totality so we can understand how multifaceted Jesus is. He isn't playing around. And what is meant when he says that he has feet like polished bronze? It refers to the brilliance of God and, and also to the judgment of God. So I think before we, we jump in too deep, I think we need to understand the culture of, of, of Thyatira. And so we, we read about this place elsewhere in scripture. You, you remember Lydia, the seller of purple, the woman in Acts 16, you know, Paul, when he, when him and Silas, they entered Philippi and she's one of the first people that they meet. She was from Thyatira and it was the, the Lord opening her heart as she became a follower of Christ. It's said that she, she left Philippi and went back to Thyatira and started this church in this Macedonian colony. So what about the geography? Well, we started in Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum. So here we're turning around to go to the southeast, and the first stop is Thyatira. It is a fortified city located about 45 miles southeast from Pergamum in a broad valley that leads to uh, the Hermas River. So in, in 190 BC, and this is important, the Romans entered and conquered this city because of its location down in the valley. It was a fortified city, but it, it couldn't protect itself from superior forces from the outside because of its location in the valley. We need to hold on to that fact because it's, it's going to be very important. Thyatira was situated along the trade route from Pergamum to Sardis. From Smyrna, a leading artery led through the valley to this city. It was, it was kind of centralized. So we have this, this postal route that goes up from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and then comes down to Thyatira. But you could cut across from Smyrna to Pergamum and then, and then th th going through Thyatira. You know, whenever a city sits at a crossroads, one of the things that it's going to be known for is its trade. So what about the economy? Well, it was local artisans that produced a variety of merchandise there. And there were bakers and, and painters, tanners and tailors and potters, workers in wool and linen and metal, chiefly copper and bronze, which is going to be really significant when we get back to Christ who identifies himself in this letter as the one whose feet are like polished bronze. There was also a significant slave trade that came through Thyatira. What about the spirituality here? Well, this is a crucial uh, point to understand. And it's crucial for us to understand what's going on. Thyatira hosted a major cult of Apollo, the son of Zeus, and the deity associated with prophecy and the sun. The emperor in Rome was linked to Apollo and may have been worshipped in Thyatira as his um, earthly manifestation. So four things we must understand about Thyatira to understand this letter. First, the, the, the guilds. There were these trade guilds. They were like our modern day trade unions. If you wanted to work in the trades, you had to belong to the guilds. There were also idols, Apollo and Artemis, very prominent here in this city. There were feasts to these idols that were often put on by the guilds. So if you belonged to the guild, 
you would participate in the feast of Apollo and Artemis, which involved the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And in addition, there were orgies that involved cultic prostitution, which were also part of the feast put on by guilds. And if you wanted to be one, you know, one of these artisans, you had to, you had to partake. And the church of Thyatira, remember what I said, was not experiencing direct persecution. It's not like Rome had come in here and and started killing Christians. The only thing the church was dealing with was, was the guilds. So what do we learn about this church? First, let's look at the good. I mean, what does Jesus say is good about them? Well, it's a pretty short list. Jesus sees their love. He sees their faith and service. He sees patient endurance. So this church was a loving church. They were a faithful church. They, they, they were a church that served. There were probably quite a few that were out of work for not bowing down to the demands of, of the guilds and, and you know were put out of work. So it was this church that came alongside those who were on the outside. This was a church where many um, couldn't find work. They would not join the guilds or partake in that temple prostitution and the idolatrous feast. And many probably had to depend on this church. But notice that Jesus says that your latter works exceeded the first. I mean, what does Jesus mean here? I mean, this is a direct reference to the church at Ephesus. When we speak of this church and its first love, Jesus refers to their love of, of, of gospel uh, proclamation. I mean, proclaiming truth about Christ no matter what. I mean, why, why would Jesus threaten to take their lampstand? Why would a church cease to be a church? I mean, let me ask that again. Why would a church cease to be a church because the church ceased to preach the gospel guys the gospel is the is the lifeblood of any church if you're not preaching it you're you're not a church so if you don't get back to your first love that first work of the proclamation of the gospel i will remove your lampstand you will cease to be a church But Jesus says of Thyatira, your latter works are more significant than your former works. In other words, this is a church filled with faith and love toward one another on the inside and on the outside consistently and constantly proclaims the whole gospel to the whole culture without compromise. And they are increasing in their faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel. I mean, this sounds like a good church, right? But just wait. Remember the question. That I asked earlier, what does it mean to tolerate the intolerable? So let's keep keep reading. Verse 20. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting this woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead many servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. So there's just one small problem here. We looked at the good. Now let's look at the bad. What is Jesus calling them out for? I mean, isn't this almost unthinkable that there is someone in the church who is actually enticing God's people to practice idolatry? I mean, this woman is probably not really named Jezebel. I mean, she is just overtaken with the spirit of Jezebel from the Old Testament. And you got to remember, there's a ton of imagery here that, that points back to the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament. So Jesus would have used this 
uh, to provoke something in, uh, in the reader. Notice Jesus says the woman calls herself a prophet. He isn't calling her that. And now the good thing here is we understand the context of the city and a little about their culture. And, and that helps us to understand um, how this woman would have walked into this church and began leading people astray. I mean, we must understand how the guilds and the feasts and the idol worship ran rampant. And this church, uh, many in this church were out of work and they were missing meals because they chose not to partake. So you have to understand how easy it was to be led astray and to compromise. I mean, how Satan could actually get a foothold here, right? I mean, this was a picture of what it will be like with the mark of the beast. Bow down or you can't be a part of society. Again, John is not talking about barcodes and, and, and microchips. Guys, this mark represents holding hands with sin and compromising. See how easy it would be to compromise when you can't work or eat or provide? I mean, hey, parents, tell me what your, you know, what, what your life's going to look like if you can't feed your kids. But I, I would encourage you to go read about Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 21. These stories tell us about the worst kings in history, in all the history of Israel. And, and this was in large part because of, of Jezebel, because of her influence. She, she's pushing this church to compromise, to join in with culture and society. I mean, hey, what, what's, what's a little idolatry? What's a little sexual immorality when you're just trying to feed your family, right? I mean, this became the thought process. And when you have someone leading you and telling you this is okay, you, you begin to believe it. In verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her, her immorality. Notice Jesus showed her mercy and gave her time to repent. I mean, this is a microcosm of the book of Revelation. Jesus is giving the world time to repent. His mercy, still available. But my friends, it will not be forever. Eventually, the grace, the mercy, it will run out. Your chances will run out. Verse 22, Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly, unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. Here Jesus is referencing to this woman and anyone who is influenced and engaging in these worldly practices. Notice Jesus says he will throw her on a bed of suffering. I mean, where do you commit adultery? Typically on a bed. So Jesus will throw her on her bed of suffering. Notice what he says to the people partaking in these acts with her. Why, why are they compromising? Mostly to avoid persecution and tribulation and suffering. And look at what he says. Basically, he says, oh, you, you want to compromise your faith in me to avoid suffering? Well, great. I'll give you more then. The hardship you will experience for me will be far greater than the suffering you, you'll experience for standing up for me. Friends, this should provoke something in you and me. I mean, how many of us compromise because of what we might endure for Jesus? I mean, Jesus is clearly saying, step up and stand firm. Don't buckle under the pressure. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. 
and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Jesus says he's going to strike her children dead. Who are this? Who are who are who is this woman's children? I mean, this is not a reference to her literal children, but to those who who are following in her footsteps, in her teaching. So you have Jezebel who has partaken in these practices, leading others to directly partake. And then you have here uh, her leading others to indirectly partake. All are guilty for being involved in this sinfulness. I mean, this is disturbing. First, we see, you know, this whole idea of children, it strikes our hearts. But he's not speaking of literal children. I mean, look at 1 Kings 21. Elijah tells Ahab the judgment is coming and that all belonging to Ahab and Jezebel will face wrath. This is a picture uh, that Jesus is speaking of. If you're holding hands with this woman, you will face wrath. The same sin in 1 Kings is the same as this sin. So Jesus is saying, repent and turn from this or you will pay. As I mentioned, this is disturbing and, and absolutely terrifying. Guys, God's wrath is real and, and this is just a foretaste. So this whole idea of, of Jesus searching out our thoughts and intentions. Uh, this is this is translated, Jesus searches your kidneys. And kidneys symbolize the deep inner nature of, of man. I mean, Jesus doesn't just look at the outside. He, he looks deep within you. And he says that you're going to get what you deserve. So why, why is all this significant? I mean, because the Bible is packed full of examples of how God's people went into exile over and over and over and over again. Worshiping at the altars of these gods of sexual immorality and, and sexual practices and idolatry. And he's saying, here you are, understanding and responding to the gospel and the completed work of Jesus where, where God poured out his wrath showing how indignant he is towards sin. And you will call yourself his people and yet identify yourself with the same sexual immorality and sexual idolatry that God has already judged. Numerous times in his word, God has judged this behavior. And yet here we hold hands with this type of, of, uh, of wickedness. I mean, guys, how many of you hold hands with sexual immorality, sexual idolatry, just sin and wickedness in general? I mean, really think about that. And I just want to say, if, if you are uncomfortable with this idea of, of Jezebel and her followers experiencing this kind of judgment in Revelation 3, guys, you're not going to be able to make it to, to Revelation 18. I mean, turn there sometime and just take a look and listen to the similarities. Chapter 18 shows us exactly what this is all about. This whore is the same woman as Jezebel and has the same spirit. And look at what she does to human creation. And then look at the judgment and the wrath that's poured out on her and all that followed her. And then verses 24 through 26. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching or deeper truths as the false teachers call them, which are the depths of Satan actually. Jesus says, I will ask for nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations, 
Guys, notice that Jesus doesn't say those who keep my word. He says those who obey, who keep my works. Obedience. I mean, think of the references earlier when he, he commends the church. He commends them for their works and their, faith, their faithfulness to the gospel. Jesus is talking about those who stay committed, those who proclaim the whole gospel and live a life that actively shows the gospel to the whole world. I always talk about the importance of obedience to Jesus and, and here Jesus himself makes this clear over and over and over and over. He says, faith without works is dead. Yet we live in this society that says works isn't necessary. Where in the Holy Bible do you get that idea? I think that honest, the God truth is, is so many say, you know, you know, we're saved by grace alone. We're saved by Christ's work. And, and that is absolutely true. But I think what happens is people get it mixed up. They, they, they hear that faith without works is dead. And they assume that, you know, that I'm saying that you've got to work your way to salvation. That's not true. I say over and over again. Yes, we are saved by the, the finished work of the cross. But that finished work of the cross and his spirit that dwells inside of you should lead you to a life of obedience in, in him. And the fruit of that, the evidence of that is, is works. So rounding out, finishing up this section, verse 28, 27 through 28, they will rule the nations with iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my father and I will also give them the morning star. This is the promise for those who stand, for those who obey. Because why? Our Lord will demolish this place and all who reject him and those who follow Jesus will inherit his kingdom and all that comes with that. We will receive authority. We will rule the nations with an iron rod. We will smash them like clay pots. And look at Psalm 2, 7 through 9. This references the son of God who will inherit all of this. That is the reference. I mean, Jesus is saying, followers, endure. Do not lean on or learn the works from this woman, who, who Jezebel, who's teaching this garbage. This woman's teaching is being tolerated in this church. That's what's wrong. And she's not being disciplined. They're just following along, going along with it. Guys, remember 1 Corinthians 5 and how Paul rebuked the church for this. And, and believers are being enticed for the sake of advancement in, in, uh, in commerce to, to compromise with sin. And Jesus is saying, you better turn from this. You better stand for truth. When you're pressured, Jesus is saying, don't worry, I will vindicate you. Guys, we read all of this and we probably are baffled at this church and how they could fall for this. But look around at our modern church. Seriously? We're all in the same boat. And we're, we're more like this church than we know it. I mean, look at our culture now. I mean, we are seeing these incremental compromises and before we know it, there will be no gospel. We can't be scared to offend for the name of Jesus. I mean, is the idea that you serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords enough for you? I mean, are you willing to give up your very way of living for him? Guys, you want to grow in the spirit? Obey Jesus. You want all of these things? You want to walk in the power, but you don't want to obey Christ? Come on, guys. As a Christian, we, we, must, be re, we, we must be renewed in our commitment to Jesus. I mean, are you a bored Christian? 
It's probably because you're a disobedient one. And lastly, in verse 29, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Warning shots. Jesus is saying, listen up. Don't participate. And be a faithful witness. And who is Jesus talking to here? Guys, this applies to everyone. It applies to those who, who are like Jezebel, who lead others into sin. It applies to those who follow the teachings of Jezebel and follow others into sin. It applies to those who permit a Jezebel to work her wickedness in their midst. Finally, it applies to the faithful who must hold fast and endure to the end. Friends, Jesus is addressing those who have ears. He is referring to all who have been given his words, no matter their age, no matter their ethnicity, their language, status. But do you have ears to hear? That is the question. Will you hear what you're supposed to? Will you allow it to sink into your heart? Or are you going to let it go in one ear and out the other? I mean, Jesus is calling us to pay close attention and seek his wisdom concerning what is written. So who is he who has ears? It's a simple answer. And it's this. All people who have been or are being given the words of God. Think these parables. You know, the original audience that heard these parables. Like Jesus said, listen up, pay close attention. Jesus' simple request is that we use our God-given faculties, the eyes to see and ears to hear, to, to tune in to his words. Guys, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Seeking God's truth takes energy and focus. It takes a willingness to, to be um, challenged, to be changed. While, while the way of God's truth is, is not the most convenient, it's not the most um, fun path to take, we can be assured that it is the best one. So my friends, I know this was a lot, but allow this, this, this uh, to sink in. And I pray that the Lord would, would move in your heart. My friends, this is, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. So tune in next week for episode four as we get into part two of, of the letter, letters to the churches. Till next week, you guys take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.